Welcome to the Data Dive Podcast, a podcast where we share the stories of real-world data-driven applications in various industries, hear how some of the most innovative companies are being built, and much more. I'm your host, Abraham Cherian, the founder of Data Dive, an international youth-driven organization focused on developing data literacy among the next generation. This episode is a continuation of our previous episode, where we had Vin Vashishta on the podcast. Vin is the founder and chief data scientist at V-Squared. He's also regarded as one of the most prominent voices in the data science space, ranking in the top 10 of LinkedIn's top voices for data science. In this podcast, Vin and I discuss the most valuable skills a data scientist could develop, unique data-driven applications in everyday life, and much more. What do you think will be some of the biggest issues as data science solutions are scaled further and further? It's the maintenance piece of it. What we do right now, for the most part, is descriptive modeling. We throw a lot of descriptive models into production. That's not, you know, there's value there, but there's no reliability. And every time you hear somebody talk about drift or, or monitoring and continuous model selection, continuous retraining, what you're doing is you're putting a Band-Aid over a big problem, which is your model hasn't learned anything. Your model doesn't know a whole lot. It knows the data really, really well. But does that data actually represent the thing that you're trying to predict? Because remember, a model models something. It's a simulation of something. And when you detach the, the, the thing that it's supposed to be simulating, the system, that you're actually trying to measure and trying to understand better and using this model to understand that system better. When you detach the two, all of a sudden the model can do amazing things in your mind, in the lab, on your laptop, and you get it into production and it just craters. And it looks great for a couple of weeks or sometimes even a month or two, but all of a sudden the performance just falls off and if you continuously retrain it and can, you know, change the model architecture around every once in a while, yeah, you can hobble it along for quite some time. But the fundamental problem is that what's in production is it's unreliable. And that's going to be our biggest challenge is we have all of these legacy models that are in production that are terrible and they've been overextended for two, three, four, sometimes five years. We've been hobbling these things along using increasingly elaborate band-aids and they're all going to fail catastrophically at some point. And companies that don't have the capability of improving their models, taking it away from just purely descriptive modeling to something that has a, a body of evidence behind it where you understand it and it's reliable because you've done the experiments, you've done the hard work to back up and to support the way that your model works. Companies don't have that capability for the most part. And so these busted models are, they're in production. And like I said, they're talking about scale. At scale, busted models just get more busted. They don't work better. They just, you start revealing the flaws. And those flaws at some point cause catastrophic failures. And what's really scary is there are some companies that aren't even monitoring the right metrics to know their models are doing terrible things in production. They're monitoring some basic accuracy measures that don't correspond to the business process or to the customer outcome 
And that disconnect, they've got something that's broken and that's doing terrible things, you know, in production right now and they don't know it. And they're probably not going to find out until somebody comes in and audits it. And that's, that's our biggest challenge because as we scale, we're building models on top of broken models. And it's just, at some point it all just fails and it's bad when it does. How do you address the issues of data bias and bias in machine learning algorithms? And what can be done to best mitigate these issues? Well, it's all kind of back to the last answer. Because we don't, because we haven't done the work to support our models, we don't understand how many of them work. Some of them we understand very well because they're very simplistic and those are awesome. I, I love the simple models, like the simple clustering and regression models that are in production. Because you can, as a data scientist, just say, this is exactly what's going on. It's so simple that making it transparent is no big deal. But where our problem comes in is where we've overextended deep learning architectures. And we haven't done the validation piece properly. We haven't really supported the deep learning model because we haven't spent any time figuring out how it works. We don't. Data scientists deploy a whole lot of deep learning models that are fairly opaque into production and that's where the bias hides because if you've learned a data set very well you know data has biases in it you know a ton of your features probably aggregate in a way that not necessarily like bias against an individual group or that sort of you know traditional sense of bias but if you're talking about customer behavioral models i mean bias towards a particular segment at a cost of maybe five or six other segments and so the bias in the data is sometimes overrepresentation, you know, the unbalanced data sets. And sometimes it's truly, you know, like hiring discrimination where you've got a collection of features like college. College is one of those landmines. The college you go to is almost a predictor in some cases of protected classes just across the board. And so you can have one or two features that bias your hiring algorithm that you look at on their, on the surface and go, yeah, but using college, that's not a bad thing. We've been using colleges forever. But it turns out that when you combine it with other features and you throw it through multiple layers that you don't truly understand, the function that it's learned is biased against one protected class. And so it's, you know, again, back to the same answer. We need to do the work to get past descriptive models and create models that learn functions. Then understand those functions and do experiments to figure out, you know, do we have a bias here? Do we have features that are correlated? And that's not bad. If you can explain it and they're well correlated and there's some support there, that's a good model. You can explain it. People can review it and audit it internally. And you have some level of support for correlation. But what you want to eventually get to is doing a causal analysis and trying to create that connection between some intervention and an outcome. You want to prove that if you're in a hiring model, you want to be able to prove that something you found in a resume or something you found on someone's GitHub profile actually causes them to be qualified to do a job. Because if it's well correlated, that's awesome, but it also might be well correlated to being a guy. It might also be correlated, well correlated to something you don't want your model to be biased towards as well. And so you have this more scientific, more rigorous process that needs to happen to find the bias because we don't even know what biases we have 
inside of our data because most of the people that are evaluating these models, well, they, they look like me. So I'm not exactly representative of protected classes. And so even as aware as I am of what I'm looking for, I'm constantly, you know, I'll discover like on Twitter every once in a while, somebody will say something and I go, oh man, I've never looked for that. I've, whoops. And I can think of models where I'm thinking, oh man, I need to go back and look at that. It's just lack of awareness. So there's a lot of this bias that if we don't do the work, stays inside of that model. And that model is complex enough that we don't know about it. And it's not easy to discover. And so that's really the the key piece of it is to do that extra work, to do the science in data science, not just the analytics, which is where we sometimes stop. You stated in the past that data scientists should pick one or two areas to really specialize in. What do you think are the best data science skills one can develop so that they could provide the most value? It's about capabilities. And I say this a lot now because I'd, I'd say six years I've been trying to figure out how to succinctly say this. And it's you can have all the skills and not be capable of doing the job. And that's what's different about data science. And there's a ton of other roles that are like that. Product manager is another one. You know, salespeople are another one where you can have all the skills that a salesperson should have and not be able to sell. You can have all the skills that you, that a product manager needs and still not be able to improve the revenue from a line or figure out what a good next product would look like. You can have a lot of the capabilities that a data scientist, excuse me, a lot of the skills that a data scientist should have. You can understand math, understand statistics, be a decent programmer, know the frameworks, and the architecture, understand data structures, have that software engineering background. But data science is harder. There are cases where the problem you get, you've never seen before. And you have to be able to synthesize all those skills to novel problems. And if this sounds like something that models have a hard time with, well, people do too. These problems that you've never seen before, that's almost everything you're ever going to do in your career in data science because all the simple stuff's done now. Most companies have done the easy, you know, sort of small type of projects. Now they're looking for something more advanced, which takes the ability to look at a product and say, okay, yeah, we can actually implement this and here's how we do it when there isn't a blueprint. Like in software development, you get a specification and arguable quality. Sometimes it's horrible. Sometimes it's great. But you get a specification. Like here is the solution. It's well-defined for you. And you have to create the implementation. And that takes a level, good level of intelligence. And especially as you start integrating with more systems, you have problems of scale. It takes intelligence to handle that implementation. But with data science, you don't get the solution. You get a data set. And you don't even know if that data set has your solution in it. Your model is going to learn a function. It's going to say, okay, is this the right function? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm asking you what the right answer is. And so you have to use your skills, use the, your background in math to figure out, okay, did I get the right answer? Is there, is there anything supportable in this model? And then you've got a scientific method, an experimental methodology that you have to develop to understand how to then interrogate your model, figure out what's right, figure out what's wrong how to quickly iterate through experiments to get to something that's supportable and reliable that you can deploy into production. And so those are really the skills that you have to focus on. It's not so much 
hey, I understand linear algebra. Uh, you know, I'm an ace at probability and statistics. I can tell you, I can tell you the probability of getting two aces in Texas Hold'em, like in the back of my, you know, yeah, it's not going to help you. <laughs> That's really not how it is. You know, and if you can code in Python in your sleep, it's awesome. But again, you have to be able to pull all of it together and synthesize your skills to novel problems. So learn the process. If you want to learn, like if you want to specialize in data science, research, experimental methodology, and it's that process of solving problems you've never seen before, figuring out how you tackle it. And along the way, there are all of these challenges. Figuring out how to identify a challenge and just one after the other, after the other, solve a problem, find five more, solve five problems. You got 25 coming at you next. It's just like that in data science. Your, your process is more important. Your persistence is more important. Figure out a domain that you want to get into. Marketing's amazing. Retail, those two are huge. Anything behavioral right now is incredible, especially decision science, decision support systems are big. You can get into anything from pharmaceuticals to finance, but pick a domain and, you know, pick one where there's actually demand. Don't, don't find that niche that nobody wants you in yet. I did that. It's a terrible idea. So look at your domain and figure out how you're going to get some domain knowledge, because that's really what's going to help you land that first job is a combination of having the ability to synthesize your skills to novel problems and having some domain knowledge so that you can speak to the people who are trying to hire you. And when you're in the job, speak to stakeholders in a way that you understand their needs and they understand yours. And so those are really the capabilities that I think are most important from a data science perspective. Now you talk about data engineers, that's an entirely different segment. You talk about machine learning engineers, that's another segment. You talk about analysts, that goes in a different direction. You have product managers, you have project managers, you have evangelists now, you have AI advocates. There are so many roles that you can pursue in data science. So when I talk about this narrow set of capabilities that you should niche into, I'm just talking about your data scientist. But there are flavors that now finally have job titles. And each one of those flavors has a different niche that you could go into. So find what you enjoy and don't necessarily think you're stuck with data science, the data scientist. Just because I do it doesn't mean you want to. And there are other roles that are just as challenging, just as great when it comes to a career standpoint. And so if you're looking at data science, if you're listening to what I'm saying, going, I, that sounds terrible. Don't worry about it. You're not, you know, you're not stuck. There's so much else that you can do. So like I said, if you, if you hate what I've just told you to do, don't look at ML engineering because that's so much more software engineering, software architecture, that if that's the side that you love, if you love building, making, creating, you know, solving technical challenges rather than solving data challenges, that's the direction to go in. So like I said, look for a niche, but first figure out a role, look at a domain and find one that there's demand in. And those are going to help you narrow down what you need to learn. You're also going to enjoy your career so much more if you go towards something that makes more sense from an interest standpoint. And whatever you do, don't try to be a unicorn. Don't do it. I tried. It's It, it was possible, but it hurts a lot because and I could do it in 2015, 2016. You could legitimately 
keep track of the field. There are something like, what is it, a hundred and something papers published every day in machine learning. If I tried to keep up with the entire field, it'd be a lost cause. I mean, don't get me wrong. Most of those papers are not relevant to read. You don't need to read every single research paper. But what that means is there's probably something you need to be reading once a week in, you know, your field, your chosen field of study. But if you've chosen eight fields, can you even imagine trying to read through eight research papers, like in-depth reading and understanding eight research papers a week and you have a day job? It's just, it's not possible. And then you have the frameworks that you got to keep up with and all of the new architectural components, the updates to every library that you might be using, understanding new hardware. I mean, just, it, there's too much. It's just, you can't do it. What are some of the most valuable non-technical skills a data scientist could have? Uh, understanding business strategy. That is something that I talk about. I even teach a class about it, but that is something I talk about a ton because if you are the one person on the data science team who can speak to strategy, all of a sudden the data science team is a strategic partner to senior leadership. You will sit in C-suite meetings. You will sit into strategy planning meetings, and those roadmap meetings where they're going to discuss what your team's going to be working on for the next two years. And if no one from the data science team or organization is in those meetings, the business is guessing what you can do. And they're telling you because they look at the data science team as a tactical team, as something that needs to be managed because it doesn't understand strategy. And they start telling you what to do. And it's going to, at some point, stop making sense. It's either going to be really low-end projects because they don't understand the technology well enough. They don't have a partner to explain it to them. Or you're going to be doing stuff that's impossible, where they're going to ask you to do something. You should, okay, we don't have the data for that. We don't have the budget for that. We don't. And so if you understand the strategy side of it, you can speak to, if you can do what I talked about, connecting that model, those model metrics to business metrics and explaining to companies why this particular project is going to result in helping the business achieve a strategic goal. If you can make those connections and say, look, this is a problem. This goal right here represents a data science or machine learning problem. And so we can do a project here that will have significant impact on that KPI that you care about. All of a sudden, senior leadership goes, okay, so this is a team who can partner with us. And during the planning phases, they can help us understand what projects we probably should be taking on. They can provide guidance. All of a sudden, you're in those rooms and you become one of the most valuable members of the data science team. Because without that connection, you know, it, it's impossible to get buy in for anything. You keep promoting projects and people are ah, you know, that's great. But here we got this other thing. Can you make this report prettier for me? That's the kind of stuff that you end up working on for years. And at the end of it, the business goes, why aren't you guys producing the kind of value we expected? And you go, but, but, and that's, you need somebody who has the business skills and the strategy to make that connection. The other piece of the equation is somebody who can work with stakeholders and get them all working in the same direction. And it's really that communications for impact. So they don't necessarily drive the strategy or drive direction. But when it comes to working with customers, when it comes to working with external teams, they can get everyone together working in the same direction to solve a problem. 
because that's what's necessary in order for good data science to happen. When I talk about that data science question, the only way you get that is if you can communicate for impact. And it's not just I can communicate and people understand me. I can communicate and people will follow me. I can make recommendations and people will take them. They won't necessarily always do exactly what I tell them to do, but they'll understand why I need them to do something and understand the impact of them not doing it on the actual project. And you can, without any authority, do some leading if you can get everybody aligned around a common goal. And that's really communication for impact. It's helping drive forward progress across organizations. That's another huge non-technical skill. How important is it for data scientists to be knowledgeable of various industries or disciplines? Huge. You have to. And, you know, I've talked about this a little bit, so I won't get too long-winded, but if you don't understand the domain that you're solving problems in, you can't solve those problems because it takes domain knowledge to make the decisions that you have to make to understand your data, to decide what approach to take, to decide what metrics are most important, what outcomes are most important for a particular project. If you don't understand the domain specifics, you can you can overlook some pretty innocuous things that end up causing your project to not deliver correctly because you don't understand that one impact is far worse than the other. Like a, in a pricing decision, you don't understand that raising a price by ten dollars, by you know ten dollars or twenty dollars on a five dollar item, that increasing it by ten dollars is not the end of the world. You know, you are not going to significantly die from charging too much. You're probably going to catch that because your, your demand is going to drop rapidly. And that'll be something you fix pretty quickly. You drop a $5 product by $3, everyone in the world is going to buy that product. And your company is going to lose a tremendous amount of money. And so if you don't understand the domain and that's a pretty simple mistake to make if you're not really getting granular into pricing models you don't understand that sometimes that five dollar item you really don't want that price to drop any more than a very very small margin so you want to make sure that there's guardrails for your models around some pretty obvious sounding but if you don't have the domain expertise they aren't so obvious and you can make some really really expensive mistakes by doing things that don't sound too crazy. And so if you don't have the domain knowledge, you don't really understand how your how the decisions you make when it comes to model performance and how the model serves inference and where the guardrails are to keep it from doing something unpredictable that's really expensive or really negative for the business. If you don't know that, you can make a lot of mistakes and so understanding the domain, number one, it's going to keep you from making mistakes. But number two, you're going to produce much higher value, not just because you don't make mistakes, but because you understand the small nuances of things like margin. You understand that for pricing, margin doesn't just come from how much you charge. It's also cost of. And in many cases, there are some hidden costs that are further upstream that you are not looking at when it comes to, okay, we buy this for $3.95, we sell it for $5. Well, it's not just that you bought it for $3.95. What other costs are associated with storing that for a long time? 
What other costs are associated with getting it to a particular location? What other co- There are other costs. And if you're not really, if you're not experienced in the pricing domain, if you're not experienced with those pricing models, you're not thinking all the way through the problem space. And you can really increase the value of the models that you deliver by thinking two or three steps into the problem. But you can't do that if you don't have the main knowledge. How do you think data can be modeled to help people make better decisions in their everyday lives? For example, using a data-driven algorithm to decide whether someone should do chores or spend time with their family. And in what ways do you see those models evolving in the future? You know, this is a good question, but a dangerous one. Because, you know, and I'm going to get philosophical here, but it'll make sense, I promise. There's a a theorem, I'm pronouncing this horribly, but the theorem's dilemma where essentially Socrates is having a conversation with someone who's just killed his dad. You know, it's dark. I promise it won't go that dark. But essentially they're having a conversation about bias. And in a morally ambiguous situation, who decides what's right and wrong? So when you ask the question, who should do chores? Well, that depends on your ontology. And your ontology determines your answer to that question. And with questions where there is moral ambiguity or philosophical ambiguity or cultural ambiguity, you now have this dilemma of deciding and understanding which ontology you're dealing with. So who should do the chores if you have four kids? Well, that depends on what country you live in sometimes or what your values are from a family perspective or any number of other factors which are variable from ontology to ontology. And so you have this concept of understanding which ontology you're dealing with when you answer a question that's an opinion, that's a decision. And it's easy when everyone has the same one. But when it comes to decision-making, you often have conflicting, overlapping ontologies. And so the two people involved in the decision or multiple people involved in the decision, when you have collaborative decision-making, number one, they aren't aware of all the factors that they need to be aware of in order to make a good decision. That's where machine learning and data science can help. You can present information in a way that the person making the decision can make a better decision because they have that information. And you can continuously improve the information you present to people and allow them to make higher quality decisions. But they're also defining something else, which is the quality of the decision. What makes a high quality decision high quality? Again, that's a person to person judgment. And data can help them understand the outcome of a particular decision so that they can start creating their own metric to evaluate decision quality. And so now that's what data science can do. It can provide information and it can create these feedback loops. So we not only know that we're making a decision, so we're making the decision consciously when a lot of us make decisions unconsciously that end up badly or well. We can also have more information available to us to make that decision. That information can continuously improve and we can have better access to outcomes and measuring the outcomes and connecting those outcomes to our decisions because sometimes it's not really that clear. That cheesecake that you're eating at the after dinner 
has a direct impact on how hard you're going to work out for the next few days. And it's really hard to think about that when it's only a couple of bites of cheesecake here and a couple of bites of cheesecake there. If you're not really aware of, for you personally, how cheesecake impacts your fitness goals, it's really hard to make that connection because for some people that cheesecake doesn't matter. If your metabolism is insane, enjoy. If it's not, if it's really vulnerable for whatever reason to the ingredients in cheesecake, that's a big deal. And so presenting people with that type of information is awesome. But how harmful would it be if I, as an app, said, hey, don't eat that cheesecake. It's going to make you fat. That, yikes. Now I've walked into, for somebody who is hardcore fitness in great shape, they're going to look at that and go, ah, that's pretty funny. But somebody who's self-conscious about their weight, especially somebody that has potentially an eating disorder, getting that kind of feedback, even implied, even said in the nicest possible way, they have a different ontology. And so presenting them with that decision, that's bad. So there's the there's a line. We can definitely provide people with some pieces of the better decision-making puzzle. But at the end of the day, they have to be the one who's in control of what a good decision looks like, what the decision is, what a good outcome looks like. They have to be in control of all of that. And if we overstep and do anything except for improve the feedback loop, and improve the quality of data that we present to them at decision time to make them aware that they're making a decision. If we go anything beyond that, we're in a lot of trouble and, and it gets bad quick. How do you see the data science and machine learning fields evolving in the future? And what areas specifically do you think these tools will create the largest impact in? I think we're already seeing it. And the reason why I'm so interested in behavioral is because I see behavioral being one of those spaces where machine learning for better or for worse will create the greatest impact on us from a society standpoint. From a business standpoint, on the other hand, it's almost a free-for-all. There are so many different ways that machine learning can improve a business. It's really only limited by how quickly you can adapt the business model and the operating model to monetize data science and machine learning. It, it, that's really the only limit. And the amazing thing about machine learning is it can even tell you, it can recommend to you opportunities to change your business model, change your operating model and improve them, improve your margins, improve your revenue, retain customers better, get new customers, create new products, enter new spaces using the capabilities you already have as a company, but just applying them in a different way. Machine learning can do all of that. And that's where I think the biggest leaps are going to come is when companies start changing their business and operating models based on the feedback from data science and machine learning models. I think once we get to that level of decision support where machine learning is supporting strategy planning and it's optimizing business models and optimizing operating models, as well as recommending changes and improvements to them, that's where I think the most interesting businesses are going to come out because machine learning can help people make better decisions about what products to pursue. And in some cases that may lead to more creative thinking because it's going to recommend something that isn't obvious. And that's the real power of machine learning is not when it tells you what you already know, but when it starts revealing things that just aren't obvious to people. And people are amazingly creative. 
They just need that little spark. And a lot of times that's just a, a suggestion that's a little different than what they were expecting and allowing them to think about it. And even if that suggestion's wrong, and the great thing about decision support, if you don't intrude too heavily into a person's decision process, is that you can make recommendations that may not necessarily be perfect, but they span, they basically spawn off a chain of thought in that individual or in that group that leads to something innovative, that leads to something new or a creative avenue to explore. And I think that's the interesting piece of data science and machine learning is when we've, when we apply it business-wise to help us understand what the business should be working on, what the business should be building, how the business should be doing it. Because right now we're really focused on what is the business building? What is the business doing? How are customers consuming it? But this question of what should you be doing, you know, with the resources that you have, with the capabilities that you have, with the corporate structure that you have, with the business and operating model, basically, that you have, what is the most profitable thing you could be doing? And that opens up a new avenue of thought because companies like Google are getting very good at moving sideways into other businesses and other industries that they never were in previously, but they're leveraging capabilities that they've built through search, through ads, through a number of other processes, another other number of other product lines. They're leveraging those capabilities to move sideways into other marketplaces, building other types of products that businesses aren't really, they're not ready to compete with Google. And then all of a sudden, one day they wake up and they're competing with Google. And there's an opportunity, not just for companies like Google to do that, but for even startups to do that, where they can innovate quickly across different markets, different industries, and use their capabilities, those things that they've developed and they're very, very good at, and they can apply it more broadly and be rapidly scaled. Thanks for coming on to the Data Dive podcast, Vin. I loved hearing your story about breaking into the data science field and hearing your vision for how data science applications will scale in the future. If you like this podcast, make sure to follow us and rate us wherever you get your podcast, and stay tuned for more Data Dive podcast episodes like this one. Thanks for having me.